All right, guys, JB in the Wolf's Den. So the wolf is in the Wolf's Den. I got the best guest ever today. Top two or three. Time number one, I think, even. Got Josh Altman, million-dollar listing. Kindred spirit of mine. Good friend as well. Um, I respect him because he's a killer. He's a closing machine, and also he's got a great sense of brand. So the goal of today's podcast is, listen, we can go on forever about all different stories, but I really want to focus in on is the business side of what you do. Um, You obviously have a a gift for, um, like I do, making lemons into lemonade, right? Um, So I know, let me just give it the short story of one. He was doing mortgages back before the crash. Like everyone in that industry, you got destroyed. Yeah. But- like few people, you actually use it as an opportunity to sort to even greater heights. And that's really what I want to focus on here is how you did that um, and how you would essentially recommend other people that might not be doing as well as you are, which is pretty much almost all people. But, you know, what would be the step one and so forth? So let's start. Had you transitioned? First of all, I, wait, wait, wait. I want to know who's number one and two that I'm in the, the top oh, no, two or three. Like Terry Winter, who wrote the um, movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. You know what? Legend. Good coming. Okay. The FBI agent who indicted me. Great guy. Okay. That's <laughs> I don't like know. The, <laughs> in the movie, oh, wait, he was great. I have to say, Grant Cardone was like the funniest podcast Grant, ever. Grant's Cause he, cool. Because he imploded on my podcast. Did he? Oh, you didn't see it? Uh, listen, it, it, all I know is that guy's plane is awesome. Yeah, he, he imploded on my podcast. So yeah, it was really a disaster. Yeah, you got to say it was a disaster. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know him personally, but on my podcast, he was an asshole and he got destroyed for no reason because I wasn't trying to destroy him. It was really, you have to watch it to believe it. Anyway, all right, I'm going to watch it. I got to check the, that out. worth the price of admission. All right, so let's just start from the top here, all right? Yeah, build a big business in mortgages, right? You're doing really well, right? The market gets destroyed, no fault of your own. This is like that case where I say, you know, sometimes you're moving through life and through no fault of your own, you get, boom, hit in the head with a, you know, basically a lump of shit, in yeah. the, right? And so it's not your fault, but, you know, you take a deep breath, you move on. So what was your first step after that that got you on this path that you're now on where you're killing it? So you got to realize I moved out to L.A. about 20 years ago when my brother and I moved out here. We didn't have two dimes to rub together. We were living in a fraternity house. I couldn't afford a car. I was, I was using rollerblades to get to my job in the mailroom. Work my way up. Start flipping houses with $5,000. Next thing you know, fast forward four or five years, that 5000 turned into a couple million dollars. So I'm 26 and I'm a millionaire. Uh, killing the mortgage game. Beverly Hills Mortgage Company, you know, you could walk up and down the streets of Beverly Hills and every 17 steps, there's another mortgage business, right? So I joined the one that had the best leads, you know, the Glengarry leads, the good stuff where you're going to make money and uh, work my way to the top of that game. We're selling everything, but mostly option arms, which ended up not being such good loans. Sure. And uh, negative AMS. Negative AMS, you know, making three in the back, two in the front. So that's 5% per loan for those of you who don't know what that is. Who were you? We going with WAMU back then or who? WAMU, Downey Savings, yeah. New Century. I mean, it was, you know, they were giving away loans. Guys, guys don't know what that means. What it basically means is that in a typical mortgage, you pay it off over 30 years, right? Now, the bulk of that is interest, especially in the beginning, and you pay a little bit of principal, but over time, over 30 years, you won't pay off the loan, right? In the case of an option arm or a negative AM loan, the actual balance of the loan grows. So you might start from borrowing a million dollars and five years later, you own a million too. Right. But the idea is that the house is appreciating much faster, so you'll have positive equity anyway, and it all ends up well. How? 
actually doesn't when the market doesn't end well. And so, <laughs> yeah, instead of <laughs> having a $6,000 monthly payment, you have a $1,000 monthly exactly. payment. Exactly. People loved it. We loved it. Everybody yeah. thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Obviously not. <laughs> so here we are and become the top of a mortgage broker, this mortgage company. My uh, rollerblades turn into a Ferrari. And next thing you know, my friends are like, what are you doing? I hire all my friends. I get a 10,000 square foot office here in Koreatown and uh, personally guarantee it. Here we are, rock and roll. What year is this now? This so this is 2000. The, I signed my lease in 2006-ish okay. for a five-year personally guaranteed lease. Okay. Oh, boy. Two, two, so, <laughs> so here we are, killing it. There's like 35 of my friends work with me. That's what it, it was. And where were you getting your leads from? Online? Was it oh, online? man. I mean, we were getting our leads from everywhere. Some places I can talk about, some places you can't talk about. You just get leads, right? You pay for them, you get leads. And uh, here we are. And it's mid-2007. I remember it exactly because the bank rep from one of those banks came in my office and goes, Altman, we're closing our doors. Like, what, what do you mean? It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Why are you closing so early today? I mean, that's how out of it we were. He said, no, we're going out of business. And, and very quickly, one by it one. all hit the fan. And one by one, every month. I mean, you know it. And uh, First was IndyMac. Remember, like, I think it was IndyMac, oh right? Yeah. IndyMac was because I was in that business too, by the way. Right. And it was Indy Mac, then and then New Century. When Wamu was that was the one you never thought was gonna go down, right? right? That was crazy, you know? Right. And and next thing you know, fast forward about four months, all of my 20 lenders out of the game. Uh, I'm putting chains on my personally guaranteed five-year lease door. Uh, went from, you know, top of the world, and immediately it's like the faucet of money stops. And all over for any industry back then. Remember that was like, it just, you couldn't get money for anything. Done. I know. Done. So here I am, which a lot of people don't know, but if you read my book, you'll, you'll know about it, is two weeks before the economy collapsed, my brother and I took all the money that we made on the side flipping houses, which was like 20 deals back to back to back to back. We took all of it and decided to go buy a castle in the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> So my brother and I are in this like 7,000 square foot castle. We bought it because it's got two master bedrooms. So we don't fight over who gets the bigger bedroom. And uh, uh, we close on the deal. And, it, you know, at the time it was a lot of money. It was like, I don't know, three and a half million dollar house and way out of our league where we should have been. And uh, two weeks later, economy collapsed. Money stops. We're stuck in this castle. We say, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Let's put it back on the market for what we bought it for. Not so simple. <laughs> Not so simple. Month goes by, no calls. Lower 200 grand. Month goes by, no calls. Lower it again and again and again. Fast forward. We end up selling it for a million and a half less than what we bought it for. That million and a half was literally the last million and a half cash that we had put down on that house that is now gone. Right. I go from the castle to the duplex. Not that there's anything wrong with a duplex, by the way, unless you live in a castle, <laughs> all right? And uh, trust me, I've been through this negative journey myself. Though. Yes, yours. I feel like yours was a little bigger, but, but still, I understand your. It your hurts pain. just as much. Yeah. yeah, you know they say it's always better to have never had money and then have it and lose it because once you have it, you really can't stay broke for long and be happy, right? You know what you're missing. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know what the other side was. All right, guys, here's a quick word from our sponsor, one of my favorites, Vincero Men's Watches. Listen, guys, this is awesome. Check out the quality of this watch. It's gorgeous. It feels great on your wrist. Every man needs to have at least one, I think at least a few different fine watches. The right watch 
on a man, it makes you feel like a better man. It's exactly what this wash does. You have to at least try one of them. Why? Because this should cost, seriously, 10, 15, 20 grand. That's the level of, of feeling that you get from this wash. It just, it feels wealthy. It reeks of wealth. It looks wealthy. You know how much it is? A couple of hundred dollars. This company, Vincero Watches, has literally cracked the code for creating like ultra high-end men's watches that look amazing, feel amazing, reek of wealth and success, but only cost as little as 150 to me. It's ridiculous. Some are 250, but a couple hundred bucks. You got to try at least one. I promise you. And because you're on this podcast, you're getting a discount. So I want you to go to VinceraWatches.com. So you enter the promo code here, Wolf, you get an extra 15% off. That's VinceraWatches.com. Enter the promo code Wolf. There's all different types of watches. Listen, you're going to want to buy a bunch, but I'm actually just try one. You can't go wrong. VinceraWatches.com, promo code Wolf, 15% off. Check it out now. Indochino Men's Suits, great company here. Love their suits. Listen, another example of just a company that has cracked the code on making an amazing product. In this case, a men's suit that looks great, feels great on you, makes you feel like a better man that doesn't break the bank. That's Indochino. They are really at the ultra high end of style, of quality material. You have suits for every occasion. You can get group discounts if you get for wedding parties and stuff. But let me tell you something, Indochino is just right up there. It's what I think is the best value by far in the industry. And you guys know that I know a lot about fine men's suits. And you can have two options here with an Indochino suit. They can actually have you fit it right online. So it's a bespoke custom-made suit that you can measure yourself in your house. They'll send it to you. Or you can go to one of their stores Either way, you got to buy. Just check out at least one suit from Indochino. You will be blown away at how much better it feels and how it makes you feel inside than an off-the-rack suit, okay? Plus, by the way, also shipping is free. Let me tell you exactly what you got to do here. You're going to get um, $30 off your purchase of $3.99 or more here at Indochino.com while entering Wolf. At the checkout. Again, that's $30 off your purchase of $3.99 or more at Indochino.com. Enter Wolf at the checkout. You know, I'll tell you a real quick, a funny story about this. It gives you some context. I and mean, everyone, this is really interesting because it applies to everything that you might be going through right now. It's life. So when I, I was in the mortgage business, I had a big company doing really well. I had to go to jail, right, for those two years in 2003. And I got, it was like, it was 2004, January 3rd, I report. I come back out on uh, October 31st, Halloween 2005, like eight, you know, it's about 22 months later, right? I come back out and my partner was still running our mortgage company. And I look at the rate sheets and the guidelines. I'm like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> I'm like, he goes like, he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, they're giving loans to people with five, 100 credit scores, 120. He's like, yeah. See, 100% I, finance. So now, because he was like that mouse and it slowly gets boiled to death. I was taken away from the business, came back in a year. I'm like, what the hell happened? I saw like they were, like the guidelines became, it was like a joke. They were giving yeah. anyone money. Giving and, I, away and I said to myself, I said, this is not going to end well. And I said, I'm writing my book. And I wrote my book instead. So you, you knew. Oh, yeah. 
just by looking at it from your experience, you're like, this is not going to end well. No way. I wrote a book about it actually before the market crash called Foreclosure. And I never finished it because I, because what happened was I started writing it. And then when it all, the shit hit the fan, I couldn't sell it to any, no one would buy my, because I was selling books for over a million dollars back then. You couldn't sell any for $10. It was just the craziest yeah. thing, right? So yeah. anyway, keep going. Well, here we are. So your question was, you know, uh, you know, uh, how do you bounce back from that? So there's, it's funny because I don't know how many people you know who are in that situation. A lot of them never bounce back, right? So if you break it down, which is, you know, I talk about in, in one of my books, is you break it down what separates people from not bouncing back to the people who get back and get back on top, right? Mm. So, you know, I, I always felt that my failures in life have been easily the biggest learning experiences out there. Mm. You never forget when you mess up, sure, right? You can forget the good stuff you did, but you never forget when you fail. So I, I never will forget the feeling of when I was depressed that next year and didn't get out of bed for a year and I was broke and I lied to all my friends about being success, not being successful anymore because I was embarrassed. I screwed up every relationship that I had. And, uh, you know, there was so much that I learned from that year now looking back, which sure. I didn't talk about for a long time, yeah, yeah. that made me the person who I am today. Mm. Eventually, I had my brother as my business partner. We kept on motivating each other. And let me tell you something. We did everything in the book to try to make money fast again. So that's the first thing those type of people do. It's like, how can I get rich quick again? Let me guess. Were you, were you starting to do modif loan modifications? Did you try that game? It's so funny. So everybody got into that. <laughs> I didn't. I had such a bad taste about the mortgage business at that time that that was the next thing that everybody went to. And that didn't end well for the anybody. Repair. There's all, this, right. all these things that everyone went into. Right? So we're driving down Doheny, my brother and I, and, and we're like, what do we do? What, do we, what can we do to make money? And, and we got nothing at this point. <laughs> And we see a Christmas tree lot. And I'm like, man, Matt, look at that Christmas tree lot. I bet you that guy's making a fortune selling Christmas trees during Christmas. So I was like, what's the next holiday? He goes, uh, we look on our phones. We're like, uh, Valentine's Day? And uh, I go, all right, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to convince somebody to lend us $20,000. We're going to go downtown. We're going to buy $20,000 worth of roses. We're going to get a pop-up shop right on the corner of Melrose and La Cienega. And we're going to upmark the roses four times. So we take that 20 and turn it into 80. Yeah. Now, a very important thing when you get into any business as an entrepreneur is you got to do market research. That we did not do. So we did not realize in the flower game, like we had any business being in the flower game, that people are super loyal to their florists. <laughs> Long story short, all of our best friends had the best of Valentine's Day ever because at 6 p.m. that night, hey, really? we said, come pick up $20,000 worth of rose and they're gone. So not only were we in the hole, now we're even more in the hole. Eventually, we realized when talking to uh, one of our mentors, I've always surrounded myself with mentors in my life. If you surround yourself with good, successful people that are team Altman or team yourself, it, 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 you, you can always bounce off ideas and that you always know that you're getting the, the straight answer. And we were sitting with one of my, my mentors and he goes, uh, you know, you guys got to stop looking at the trying to get rich quick thing. You got to go with what you love. You got to trust your gut. You got to figure out what makes you happy. And we're like, well, you know. Uh, Money makes me happy. Well, yeah, but what is it with, the, how do you get there? And it was, well, every Sunday, because we're broke, every Sunday we go around and we look at open houses. Right. We flipped houses and we financed houses up to that point, and then we lost it all. But we find ourselves walking through these houses during open houses, and we say, well, we love real estate. Why don't we just become real estate agents? 
We love dealing with people, and we can still be part of the deal, which is what we love. That's where the rush is. It's the negotiation. It's the close, which is why I wrote the book, The Altman Close. And uh, we started doing that in 2008 and a half-ish. Worst time to become, you know, a realtor. Nobody's- best time, actually, at the bottom, because I, I believe that's always the best time. Because if you can make it at the, if you can make it when things suck, yeah, then you can really roll when things turn around. So I think you ended it at a great time. One thing I want to let's slow down for a second. So you you brought up a point here, right? And you said, you know, why is it that some people, well, most people, don't bounce back? And why did you bounce back? And then about two minutes later, you said one word or like three words. That was the answer. And the answer is, is you said, I just had to convince someone to lend me $20,000. In other words, the ability to influence and persuade and close, because you have that ability, it allows you to come back from failure. In other words, if you are an influencer, a closer, so to speak, right, that is that linchpin skill. When I was a kid growing up, my best friend's dad should say, if you flush Jordan down the toilet bowl, he'll come up holding a plumber's license, right? <laughs> and you know what that's about? It's about having the ability to actually, and it's not just in closing a sale like in a traditional sales setting, raising money from someone, selling yeah. an idea, a concept, right? You have that in spades, in boatloads, right? Yeah. And bottom line is that's, I believe, really not the only, but the cornerstone skill to be able to come back from failure, to, to pick yourself up from your bootstraps, that's it. I agree, I agree. And uh, look, it it was a long journey. Every stepping stone, every failure, every success had molded me into the person where I was at that point. I always say this now, looking back, making money is the easy part. Okay, I go you like I'm, I'm never once you're broke, you're never worried about being broke again. Right. But you're a hell of a lot more careful, right? And uh, and you're smarter. And thank God, when I was, I didn't have two kids, which I have now, and you know I'm married, and I got you know a lot more responsibilities, but. Making money is the easy part. Keeping it and growing it and doing the right thing with it, it takes a lot. Yeah. So here we are. We start selling houses. First six months in the business, guess how much we sold, my brother and I? Zero. Okay? We're literally walking up the, the Hollywood, up and down the Hollywood Hills till there are no soles on the bottom of our shoes. Sure. Because we got no money and we need sure. to make money to breathe yeah. and live. Mm-hmm. We're door knocking a thousand doors a day in real estate. Our knuckles are numb by the end of the night. We ice our knuckles every night. Eventually, we closed our first deal. So I can tell you everything about that deal, just like you can probably tell everybody exactly about your first deal once you you know moved in that direction. Sure. Tell you how much it was. I can tell you I needed it to close like I needed air. The second I got it under my belt, it was almost like a, a, a switch flipped and we were back. From there, fast forward, you know, that was 2000, late 2008. Till now, you know, we've now sold, uh, let's see, the first year we sold at $6 million. Second year, we sold $12 million. Third year, we sold 40. Fifth year, uh, we sold uh, 80. Then there was the next 12 months, we sold $250 million in residential real estate. And now we sell $500 million a year in high-end residential real estate or the mansions that people freak out about on Instagram that, sure. you know, half of them pretend they own, which they don't. Uh, but this is the type of houses that we actually sell. Let me let's slow down for a second. Yeah. So, all right. So you, you go out there for six months, you're, you know, just no success, yeah. but you're doing the work, right? Did something happen? Was there an insight that you gained during those six months? Or was it the fact that, you know, when you first enter any market, you know, you walk in and, you know, 
the good ones are already being looked at by the people who are established in the industry. So you, it takes time almost to get in your enamel. You start seeing the deals as they come up. You always get, you know what happens when you walk into an industry? You get the shit deals first, the ones that no one wants, the ones that no one could sell. So you're trying to sell things that are really unsellable. That's in any industry. Yeah. So is that kind of what happened in the beginning? That, actually, that's exactly yeah. what happened. So I'm very big on paying your dues. I think you need to pay your dues in order to be successful in life. I think you got to know what the bottom is like in order to appreciate I the top. I couldn't agree more, yeah. I started in the mailroom. You think I like delivering mail for, for a year and a half to people and lit, and making $6.50 an hour? No, but I paid my dues. Right. Eventually, I took those people who I delivered mail to out to lunch. I picked their brain. I learned from them. I used that to buy real estate and this and that. The uh, uh, When I got into real estate... I walked straight up to the best realtor in the company and I said, you don't know me. I'm nobody. I mean, I, I had no problem sucking up my pride because at that point I was beat down. I said, I'm nobody. And I know that you do very well in this business. I will sit the open houses that you have that you never even want to think about again. The open houses that have been on the market for two years, the ones that nobody wants to talk about or touch. I said, I'm your guy. You want me to pick up your coffee, your dry cleaning, any of that? For sure I'm in. But I'm also, I want your shittiest open houses. And my first eight out of 10 deals were sitting open houses that nobody else wanted right. when I got in the business. Yeah. And then from there, you know, I think it was uh, probably six years into it. I was in the newspaper for a couple celebrity sales. We're rocking and rolling. I get a show, uh, a call from a show called Million Dollar Listing LA. Mm -hmm. And they go, hey, you know, we, uh, we want you to come in. Now you got to realize uh, the the roller coaster of our life since we've been out in Los Angeles yeah. has been crazy. Yeah. Broke, millionaires, broke again. Now we're on the way up again. Sure. And you're very careful, right? I look at my brother. I'm like, I don't know if we should do the show. Uh, uh, I don't know if I could take losing everything again. It's, it was just, it, it was a lot on me. I don't know if I can go through that process. I'm now putting my whole life on television. So in the, what was the fear that you had that if you kind of ex, ex, sort of blew up your brand, if it was if the show was perceived negatively, it didn't work, it would taint you some way in town, become maybe you'd lose your, you wouldn't be taken seriously. Is that what it was? Yeah. So you only get one reputation in life. Okay, especially in a town like Hollywood, right? You only get one reputation. So I'm on a show where I have no control. They can make me look like whoever they want to make me look like. I show up, but they can cut it. And anybody who knows Hollywood knows no doubt. you could be the nicest guy in the world and they can cut it making you look like the most evil person. I looked at my brother. I was like, should I do this? And he goes, Josh, what's the number one most important thing when investing in real estate or being a real estate agent? I said, what? He said, letting everybody in the, in the world know what you do for a living. And so I made that decision to step forward with that opportunity because no matter what they made me look like, I could have been, you know, whoever, at least they'll know I'm a realtor. Sure. And now here we are 13 seasons later, uh, 2 million viewers in episodes, 70 countries around the world. The first couple of years, I got crushed. I mean, I stopped going on social media because people were talking so much smack <laughs> and it's everybody wants to judge you Thank and God. I'm the new guy on a show and nobody ever likes the new guy and I'm the alpha male on the show and nobody likes the alpha male. <laughs> so two years, I got crushed. What kind of things are they saying? Like oh my God, <laughs> cocky, ego, 
you know, I, a lot of words I can't say on this, uh, but you get it and you, you know, you get it nonstop. And then at some point it turns and people, I know, I you know, know, you know, I know. And, I know. and you know, like, Oh, you know what? I like it. Maybe his cockiness is not cockiness. Right. It's confidence. confidence. Yeah. And then, Oh, you know, I like how he steps up and says what he's thinking. So that's okay. Anyway, as the season goes, as the, the, the seasons go, uh, it turns. Here we are now. Coolest part of the show. I got to meet my wife on the show. I had my kids on the show now. I got little Ace Altman was born uh, uh, 10 weeks ago. And, uh, you know, they follow our lives around. There's goods and bads, but the goods far outweigh the bads. Um, I will tell you, though, looking back now where we are selling a half a billion a year, we just opened our office on Robertson Boulevard. Uh, you know, we got the books, we got the podcast, we got the, the speaking engagements, we got the, the YouTube and all this. Everything in that roller coaster ride of our life has turned us into the type of people that we are today. And whereas now I can look back and I wouldn't change a thing. Um, but obviously, while you're living it, it was crazy. It was difficult. You brought up a couple of points in there, right? One of them I commented on was, you know, about you convince someone, right? The ability to influence and persuade, right? The second thing you said that I agree with a thousand percent, something I teach people and I sort of live my life by is that you're not the mistakes of your past. You're the resources and capabilities that you glean from your past mistakes. Every failure you have, it actually makes you grow stronger. You, imp- I, you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes, Correct. Correct. So, Absolutely. So for you, what was what was the lesson? Was there a, was was there like one major takeaway from the crash from the whole episode? Where you know you was it not living above your means? Was it um, you know buying into the hype and bullshit of a, of a of a kind of a false bull market that went on? It'll always go up. Or was it just simply you know what? You know, because here's the thing. You didn't really do anything wrong. Right. The market, it was like one of those things where just the market got blasted. You got destroyed. Yeah, and we were talking about that earlier. I did nothing. Listen. I say you walk and do everything right, and bam, you get destroyed. So what was the biggest lesson from that whole thing? I I think a couple things. One is, yeah, definitely don't live above your means, okay? You don't need to do that. Don't worry about how other people perceive you. Do what you need to do to get by and and, and just enough. But you don't need to – look, we're in a town where it's – absolutely magnified a hundred times. The car you drive, the house you live in, the custom suits you wear, the watches, the lo- everything, which is all actually at the end of the day, worthless, Right. okay? And you realize that once you either have all of it or if you've been through it, the other thing, which is the most important thing, which I, I strongly believe about and I talk about all the time, is be an expert at what you do. I was not an expert in the mortgage business. I went to one company where they taught me to, to sell one program. You're an expert salesperson, not an expert at mortgages. At the actual oh, yeah, yeah, an expert salesperson. Understand your craft and be the best at it and study it and learn it. And it doesn't happen overnight. I was taught one program to sell. That's all I sold. I didn't know other programs. I didn't know it wasn't the best program. If I had known, of course, how would I be in the mortgage business and not know that the economy is going to collapse when a babysitter comes into my office and buys a $5 million house? (laughs) How is that possible? (laughs) So I wasn't an expert at what I was doing. And never will I allow that again. So when in, in real estate now, representing not only my own money when I flip houses, but other people's money, which I treat like my own money. I pride myself in being the best in the world at what I do. And that way I can confidently do deals. So let's talk about that. So in terms of this whole thing of, you know, being a a flipper, right? You know, flip. 
if you're, let's say you're a 25-year-old man or woman, right? 35, and you want to start getting into that business. Is that still a good business right now? Would you recommend it? And how would you start doing it? Okay. I think it's better than ever right now because I think over the next 24 months, you're going to see some uh, amazing opportunity. Because in a lot of different markets, there's different types of uh, inventory. So right here, you know, when you have a lot of inventory in a market, prices are going to come down. Developers are going to get stretched. People are going to walk away from stuff. I think there's a lot of opportunity over the next 24 months. I think that you can start. And what I have on a lot of our programs, kids are starting at like, you know, 20-year-olds investing in real estate. You can never be too young and you can, it can never be too little, no matter what. Don't look at hitting grand slams on every deal. I know a lot of my clients who are the wealthiest people on the planet have become wealthy by hitting singles and doubles And when you least expect long. it, all of a sudden you might hit a triple or a home run, right? That's it. And that will come in time. You know, when I got, when we bought our first condo, which we flipped 90 days later, we bought it for, I had five grand in my name. My brother had five grand in his name. We put it together. We had 10 grand. We spent the year in the mailroom studying the market and how to, you know, what mortgages were. And we walked into a bank and said, hey, we got 10 grand. What can we get? And we bought a $400,000 condo. So we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money, uh, but we learned the process and learned what was available out there for us to make money. We took that 10 grand. We bought a $400,000 condo. We ended up painting it. We ended up uh, flipping the, uh, uh, changing out the light fixtures. We ended up, uh, uh, you know, doing some work to the place. 90 days later, we sold it for 200000 So we took that 10 grand and in 90 days turned it into $200,000. We thought we were millionaires, okay? Right. This was the first time we'd ever seen money. You know, immediately I'm taking my rollerblades, rollerblading to the Jeep dealership and buying a Jeep and throwing my rollerblades at the back. That was my first car <laughs> yes. when I made money. No way. When I made my first $15,000 check as a stockbroker. Come on. In the late 80s, my first wife, wife number one and I, we found this Jeep, the white Wrangler with the Olympic package, it was called. And we were so pleased with ourselves. We had no money. Yeah. And we like sat outside the dealership window waiting for it to open the next day because we're like, that's going to be our car. It's going to be our car. It was the greatest feeling in the world. So cool. A Jeep. The greatest feeling. Amazing, right? Yeah. And throwing the rollerblades in the back and driving to my job in the mailroom in that new Jeep and quitting. One of the greatest feelings ever. Because that was a stepping stone in 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 our life and in career, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's look. There, there's so many different lessons that we learn from all this stuff that we've been through, uh, but it's it's been a crazy ride. Tell tell me what's the first steps? Okay, so let's say you you want to get into this whole. You know, I, I think flipping is kind of just a kind of a, a word. It's not really just flipping. Just in, it's investing in real estate, right? Yeah. It's Fli- investing like investing are, in anything. Exactly. Right. So let's not use the word flipping. Just buying properties and selling them when it makes sense to sell them. Yeah. That could be a flip if it makes sense or you could hold it and get cash flow, right? Yeah. But what's the first step in that? So how do you, would you invest in, is it a geographic thing? Like first, do you say, okay, I want to invest in LA or in Florida or te- or well, how do you start? Like, how so, do you start? Great question. Yeah. Great question. A lot of people will look at markets. Oh, that market's hot. That's where I'm going to invest. I always believe that I invest in the places that I know best. If I can drive around and I can physically touch the properties that I own, then that's where I'm going to invest. So you can invest right here in LA. That's what, that's my advice is invest where you live. Okay. Okay. Because you have full control of what's going on. You're not, you know, you don't have something across country that you can't deal with for some reason if there's ever an emergency. Okay. That's number one. Number two is you have to surround yourself with the correct team. 
Okay. You're not reinventing the wheel. Millions and millions of people have invested in real estate in their life and have done very well and are available for you to pick their brain and surround yourself with these people. So you got to find out your financing type of options. You got to link on to somebody who's done it before. Learn from them. Be a protege. That's cool. There's no rush in doing it. Once you learn everything and you want to take the step forward, when I look at real estate and buying it, I buy value ads. I'll never buy something again where I can't add value. And the best way to add value is added square footage. That's what I look at. Ah. So the first thing when I'm looking at a flip, I call the city, I call my expediter, I say, how much more square footage can I add to this property if I buy it? And if it's nothing... You're not, it's much harder to take something and make it worth more when you're not really changing it. Coat of paint's not gonna make the same difference as an extra 1,000 square feet, basically, Exactly, right? exactly. So that's what I look for. Hmm. I have a, 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 an interesting story. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of flips in our lives, and it's funny you say a coat of- Define flip. How, when does a flip become not a flip? So what's, what's is there a sort of general time frame, like under a year, under six months, or the two years, is there- so there's there's different levels to flips. Okay. So I have flipped contracts before where you lock up a house in escrow. You have the contract in front of you. It's in your name. You got such a great deal that you negotiated that then you take it to the market of people you know that are looking for something like this and you flip the contract. It's just paper. So And then they take over your contract and then they pay you also on the side. So you're making money without even owning it. That is like the holy grail of awesomeness in flipping houses. You never even closed on it, which means you don't have to use capital, your own capital. You're flipping paper. That's the number one way to flip houses. Number two is you buy it and you add value to it and you put it back on the market, but that you have to close on it. You have to obviously have money to redo the house and put it back on the market and you sell it for more money. That's another way to do it. Um, and then, uh, uh, the other way, so let's see, we got the contract way, we got the redoing it way. And then the other thing is actually just buying something so right that when you do close on it, you then just do little stuff to it, like paint or this or that. And then you flip it. Got it. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways and there are different markets that allow you how to flip, uh, allow, allow you to do different things right now. Flipping a contract, extremely difficult mm. in this market. Cause the real, real estate's not appreciating fast enough, right? Correct. Got it. So, um, what would you say? So, what in terms of like the, I think the big, the devil in this whole thing is that leverage can be your best friend, or if you use it incorrectly, it could be a disaster, right? So, do you believe there's a certain amount of leverage that you should not go over? Do you have like a, any hard and fast rule in your mind? Like, I want to have at least X amount of equity, or do you want to leverage as much as possible? So they're different players in the game, right? I mean, you know, you're, look, we're all on the speaking circuit. We're all on the motivational circuit. And there's some players that are all leverage. And then there's some players that are not. And they're completely different. For me personal, personally, you know, a lot of people watch my show and they see uh, a heavy hitter come up and say, Josh, 15 million, all cash, quick close. The reality of that, because people say, where do these people get all this cash from? Even the wealthiest people that I deal with. Line of credit. Right. The wealthiest people that I deal with, they might buy the house and refinance out of it and pull cash out. They have a line of credit at a 1% something with their premier bank, their private banker. So it's Based not on really- bonds they have locked up or a portfolio, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So even the smartest, wealthiest people- You don't sit people, around 15 million in the bank, right? Right. You just, it doesn't make sense. I believe in leveraging yourself. I believe in using the system to 
create opportunity for you. What is that point of over leverage? Man, that's tough. That's a tough question. I, I don't have an answer to that. Okay. I think it's just actually knowing how much you can actually hold. Okay. So for what, just, I, I, I like to know what you think of that question. Well, I guess it would depend on what I would what I would look at. Say, okay, I always look at the downside. If things really go to shit, can I somehow carry this loan through other resources? If I have alternative cash flow that I can offset the deficit, I'm fine. But I would probably be very careful about is putting myself in a position that if tenants stopped paying or I was forced to hold the property longer than I really wanted to, that I had another source of cash flow that could allow me to service the debt. As long as I had that, I wouldn't worry. Right. I might worry if I had no other way to service the debt because then you're holding yourself victim to the whims of the market. Right. Who knows when the next time credit's going to tighten. Or So you look at the worst case scenario when you invest. I always look at the downside yeah. and the upside. I want to make sure I don't get it, especially as I get older. Because I know, you know, I've been up and down, right? I don't want to have another knockout punch, so to speak, right? So before I would invest in something, I'd say, what's the worst that could happen? I want to make sure I could, and if I, and it might be if it's a loss, fair enough, it's a loss and you walk away and that's that, right? Um, but I would certainly analyze what's the worst that could happen for sure. It's a good way to do it. And you? It's a good way to do it. I, I believe that's a great way to do it. I mean, look, when I invest in any startup companies, a lot of people, it's funny, they watch our show and they think I'm like one of the guys or, 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 or ladies on Shark Tank. I get pitched all day, every day by people on the street that come up to me, emails. I mean, we get inundated with emails of people with ideas, also because I represent about half of the sharks on Shark Tank. And and so they're, oh, can what do you think of this or that? And it's funny because uh, uh, whenever I do invest in anything, I always kiss that money goodbye. If I see it again, there plus go, some, right. there you go. It's amazing. There you go. But don't invest what you can't afford to lose. That's it. That's, that's it. That's say that's the philosophy. And, and I also say invest with what you use. And, hmm. and my my uh, uh, my parents taught me that. They say you know if you use a certain toothpaste that you love <laughs> and it's a public company, maybe you invest in the toothpaste. Right. You know, so you invest in things you use and know. Right. What do you think about? Um, your your relationship with social media um, and how you've used it to grow your business. What do you think the future of it is? It's a broad question, I know, but just give me you know, a sense of how you've used social media and the kind of some really things you've done right, some things you've done wrong, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Social media is completely taken over this world. I am not a, a, a very technologically savvy guy. Nor am I. Okay, I'm a sales guy like you, old school handshake. If it was up to me, that's just what it would be. Yeah. However, you have to embrace social media, but you have to use it in a very smart way and you have to be so careful because if you did something back in the day, that's it. You did something and it's done and you move on. If you do something on social media, it's there forever. It's a tattoo of your brand for the rest of your life. So I always say you are a walking billboard for your business. And I'm, I'm very careful as far as branding uh, 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 what we put out there. First thing I do when somebody emails me and says, oh, I want to be part of the Altman Brothers. I want to sell the best real estate in the world. First thing I do in any interview in any business, that person's going to look on your social media and they're going to Google you. And if you're there doing keg stands, uh, uh, you know, on spring break and that's what they see, that's your brand. Right. 
You're done. You don't, you don't even have a chance. You're branded whether you want to be or not yeah. these days, right? Now, I'm not saying don't go have fun. Trust right. me. I, I have fun with the best of them. Right. But be very smart what you put out there because everything will be there forever, and that's what people look at. So in real estate, they always sell you, tell you, don't, don't do a couple things. Number one, don't ever talk politics, right? Because if you talk politics, you're going to lose- the people. Gone. Half your clients are gone. But the other thing is you just got you to embrace social media, but you got to use it like it's your personal website. So, you know, yes, I have the Altman Brothers website, but I also have the Josh Altman on Instagram and Twitter. I also have the Facebook. These are all websites for my business, and that's how I treat them that way. I did a uh, – I just sold a house that I double-ended down in La Jolla. It was the most expensive sale this year. It was $21 million. I represented the buyer and the seller. You do the math, that's a very large paycheck. I sold the house because of – a YouTube episode that I shot of the house that I put on YouTube. Somebody saw it, sent it to the buyer. The buyer says, I just saw your YouTube episode, called me up directly. Next thing you know, we did a deal. And that's 5% on really like, you know, a 20 something million dollar sale. Not bad, right? Not bad at all. You got to embrace it. In our business and as an entrepreneur, the more eyeballs, the better. And that's how you're going to get out there. What do you think about um, a career as a real estate agent? Good way to make money for a young person uh, looking to break into the, or someone that, you know, 30s or 40s that wants to change careers or um, best days behind it. What do you think? Uh, I think it's an amazing career. I think that everybody should have a certain knowledge of real estate if they want to be a real estate agent or not. At some point, you're going to achieve the American dream, which is owning a home, and you better understand the process so you don't get screwed. So you got to know, you got to buy right. You got to sell right. You got to have the right realtor. You got to have hookups with the mortgage business and, and, and you got to know everything. So I think it's a very important aspect just to, to have in life, in your back pocket to understand. Um, I think that I get emails probably a hundred a week of saying, I want to work for you. I want to be rich. So they see on TV, all the flashy, they see the Rolls Royce and the mansions and this and that. And I see these emails. I was like, out of everything that we put out there, this is what this person is going to take their one opportunity to send me. I want to work for you so I can be rich. Like, really? Think about that. You got to love what you do, right? There are a lot of gigs out there that suck, that people aren't happy about, and they do every day for the rest of their lives, and they're slaves to their jobs. Find what you love. It's not all about money. It's about being happy because if you're a happy person and you're going to be successful at what you do because people are going to want to surround themselves with you. Right. Um, so uh, I, I think if you want to get into real estate because you really love real estate and you really want to do it and you're in it for the long run because you're going to have years of not making money, then yes, it's an amazing opportunity. And once you're good at it, it's a snowball effect. And the better you get, just like us, I've... 10 million, I, I have 10 houses, over 50 million coming out probably in the next six days, then yeah, you're rocking and rolling. Right. But don't forget the story where I sold one house my first year and the first six months was sure, nothing. you gotta pay your dues, right? You gotta pay your dues. How do you um, distinguish between residential versus commercial? You think this is a good career in commercial real estate or which do you think is the more lucrative or more, let's say the more fun or cool? That, all right, so that's a good question. I'm not a commercial real estate guy. I have commercial real estate guys that work for me. Uh, and, and they do very well. And it's a very interesting business. I'm personally a residential guy because I like, I like the negotiation that involves emotions. 
So listen, I show a house. Uh, let's say I show a house to a husband and a wife, and uh, the wife walks in and goes, oh my God, I love this. That deal's done. They're paying what they need to pay for that house because they're emotionally attached to it, right? So when I do showings, let's say a, a, an agent calls me up and they bring their clients through, I'm watching every move these buyers are making as they're walking through the house. And the second they give me something, I'm going to grab it and they are done. And I know that. So when it comes down to negotiating, at the end of the day, I have something that they want. Commercial, it's numbers. There's nothing sexy about it. It either makes sense or it doesn't make sense. That's why I personally think that residential is more fun. It's more exciting. Uh, it's a sexy business. Uh, but man, uh, but you know, my, my biggest clients in the world are heavy, heavy in commercial. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this, the Altman negotiation strategy. <laughs> let's, let's go through it. Like where you, you know, let's let me, you know, do a little role playing here. Here, Like okay. I want you to, like, how would you, s you sell me this pen? Now sell me this. No, <laughs> no, what's your secret? No, seriously, you're an awesome closer. In fact, you asked me to come on the show a couple of years. Remember that? It was a yes. Years. I've got to come yeah, on. Yeah, you can. I'm going to come on. I'm going to do it. Let's put, I, I, I'm a big fan of yours, man. <laughs> I, you know, I watch your speeches online. Uh, you know, uh, uh, sales people recognize <laughs> sales people. And you're very good at that. And so I, I, I really respect the, the sales aspect of, of just your, your, your skill in selling. Thank you. And because it's not, you know, people ask me all the time. They say, can I learn to be good in sales or is it something that's just natural and oh, it comes to Oh, you can learn. For sure. So you learn yeah. all day long. If the you saw me in high school, yeah. you know, really bad grades. I was a shy kid. I was, I was the complete opposite of what I am now. I learned it. Let's talk about uh, your approach for not so much the selling, but negotiation. Yeah. What's the, give me, you have a step, you have a formula or is it, a, is it, have you broken it down like that or no? Is it yeah. So I do. And, and, and I did that, the Altman close, which came out a couple months ago. Check it out. If you guys want, you can get it anywhere. Um, that's actually breaking down the entire negotiation process, getting you to the close, okay. which is the sale. Okay. And I think that, that the important thing that people have to learn is the negotiation starts way before anybody even knows there's a negotiation. Sure. So what I just spoke about, for instance, somebody walks through a, a beautiful house that I'm representing. From the second that door opens, I'm asking what I like to call, you know, Altman key hammers. The Altman hammer is what I talk about. These are questions, these hammers, that are going to allow me to navigate to be able to win a negotiation. Okay. So when these people are walking through, I'm asking very strategic questions that if they do end up uh, uh, putting an offer in on the house, I have the answers to these questions. Sure. Give me so, an example. Uh Oh, yeah. So uh, let's say I'm showing somebody a house and the other agent tells me that uh, the seller is getting divorced. Okay. Right there, I know that they have to sell the house. Mm -hmm. It's done. So I know that they're super motivated. I know that that's a motivation factor. Uh, they tell me that the seller's kids just graduated high school. I know that they're going to downsize. They don't need as big a house anymore because the kids aren't going locally to a school. Sure. Their motivation. So I look at the motivation levels throughout. Um, I, 
when when buying any any uh, any house out there, I think it's really important to uh, spend as much time as possible in these houses to really understand what you're buying. It's funny. I've done I've done showings at five in the morning because people want to see the sunrise before they go hit the golf course. And I've done showings at midnight because people wanted to see how many cars drive by their house that late at night. Yeah. So also that was just a side thing. Just throw in, uh, 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 spend as much time as possible in the piece of real estate that you're thinking of purchasing. Anyway, so you have all these Altman hammers. I think the most important thing, which is why you should always meet with three different agents when you want to buy or sell a house, because you have to have the expert in the area, but you also have somebody who's going to be able to represent you where they can step outside the deal. When emotions go into a deal, you lose. Give me an example. So uh, somebody gets angry because, uh, 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 oh, uh, here. You get an offer, you take it personally, and uh, you say, I'm not countering that offer. That's disgusting. How would they offer me this price on this house? I built this house. What are they thinking? Step away from the deal, okay? If you're going to buy a house, you start low. Nobody ever starts high, right? right? And I put some of the best deals in my career together that were insulting initial offers that came together because we worked it. We massaged the deals. So you got to step outside the deal. Realize that even though it's your home, this is more of, it's an asset. And just treat it like an asset. And that's why our job as realtors are so important because that's how I treat it. I don't care where you fell in love in the house or I don't care that you built this room with your bare hands or or your parents lived here or this or that. It's an asset. Right. And it's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And uh, at the end of the day, that's why you need somebody who steps outside it. So you want to keep emotions completely outside of the deal. And don't show your hands. Come on. Don't show your hands. In poker, you never show your hands. When you walk through a house, I have I have uh, uh, whatever you want to call them. I have little uh, uh, sentences that I say that we have. It's almost code words. Listen, folks, I'm going to show you this house. I know this agent's super aggressive. They're going to be watching everything you do. If you love the house, that's fine. Don't say it out loud. Tell me you want to get coffee after this before you see the next property. I used to call my ex the world's worst negotiator. She destroyed me. I, I have to have this. I have to do this car is probably like, oh, my God. No, it's not. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> because even in cars. Right. So. So first of all, so then they She'll say, kill me oh, all the time. Yeah. But like it's so perfect. you're walking through the it's house to go, perfect. oh, hey, Josh, by the way, we're thirsty. When we go see the next house, can we get coffee? Which means we love this house. And that way I'm paying more attention to what the realtor who's selling it is saying. Got it. So we have little code words. And that's right. Make sure you change that one now. Yeah, now I can't. Now it's not coffee anymore. <laughs> there you go. But And it's funny because so when you go and buy a, a car and uh, you show up, you go to the dealership, and then you, and you don't buy something and you leave – they always call you. They always lower the price. Right. And the less you care, the more motivated they are to get the deal done. So it's, you know, it's so easy. I've always personally thought I'd be a really good car salesman. It's something that uh, uh, I actually want to try. I was thinking about doing a YouTube episode where uh, I'm going to go to a Rolls Royce dealership because the manager of Rolls Royce I'm cool with, and I'm going to sell Rolls Royces for a day. And I want to actually see if I can prove that. Uh, how much of it is actual sales and how much of it is actual uh, uh, knowledge of the product. Mm-hmm. But we're going to go do that. I like that. Yeah, you want to go do that with me? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that'll be oh, fun. Yeah. I've sold everything. <laughs> <laughs> sales is sales, my friend, right? I want to play oh, a game. But, but, you, but listen, you brought up one really important point, though. And it's what I always say to people is that, you know, the key in those first few seconds of any encounter, you're being analyzed, ripped apart, perceived a certain way. 
And unless you're perceived as being sharp, on the ball, enthusiastic, and an expert in your field, you have no shot. If you're not perceived as the expert, A, people won't answer your questions honestly and forthrightly when you ask them. People will interrupt you. They won't, they'll try to control the flow of the encounter versus when you're in the presence of a true expert, you defer. You let them guide you because that's experts have earned that yeah. right, right? Yeah. So what you said is that I would never go, and this is very true, you said I would never be in a business again where I wasn't truly an expert because a great salesperson can sound like an expert even when they're not. So the idea is you have to sound like an expert. So you're a big believer in, yeah, I have to sound like one, but I'm also going to close that knowledge gap. No matter what I yeah. do, I need to become an, a, a true expert. Yeah, and of course, look, if you have to fake it till you make it, I, look, <laughs> I had this watch when I was younger. It was fake because, I, I you know, you, you play the part. Right. And if you have to fake it till you actually make it, then you got to do what you have to do. There's no question about it. Um, you know, I used to go borrow. Uh, I, I had a friend who had a fancy car. So whenever I had a big showing, I go drop, drop off my bad car and borrow his car right. uh, for the hour and a half of showing. So you got to look the part. Right. Remember, people are about to go spend the biggest investment of their entire life, which is house a house, with you. They need to have confidence that you are the best at what you do. Wealthy people hate wasting time. That is the number one thing. Time is money. And if you waste a big client's time, they're not your client anymore. Right. And everybody's up for grab. Nobody's loyal in the real estate business. One day they uh, go out with a young lady whose brother is now is a real estate agent. That's their new real estate agent. Right. So you got to stay on top of the game. Um, I wanted to play a game with you. Sure. Okay. Because uh, uh, you're a wolf and I'm a shark, right? So I want to play, uh, what were we calling it? Was it two, two, just two truths and a lie, but uh, this is going to be uh, two, wolves and a, two wolves and a shark? All right. It's the game. I want to test my skills against one of the greatest. I'm going to tell you three stories. Mm -hmm. And I want you to tell me which one's truth, which, are the two, which two are true and which one, which one am I lying about? Okay. Okay, you ready? All right, first one. When I lived in the castle, my brother and I lost everything. We're in this like 7,000 square foot house. The mortgage business crashed. We had no money left. We're going literally month to month, seeing how we can find the money in order to make a mortgage payment to survive till we sell it. Right. At one point we got so desperate, we put our house all over these different websites to rent out our house. And we got a call from a porno company and they said, uh, we'd like to rent your house out for a porno. Uh, we pay, you know, eight grand for the day, but we use your house in a porno. And I said, uh, oh man, I don't know. We're not in the porno, but you know, they would shoot there. And uh, uh, I said, I looked at my brother. I was like, we don't have a choice. So there was a porno shot in the castle that we lived in and owned. Okay. And that's number one. Number two. I'm out there and I see a property that I love. I lock it up and I buy it for $2.6 million. I close on the house, which I had enough financing for, but I needed financing in order to redo the house to flip it. My financing fell out. I'm now stuck with a house that I just bought for $2.6 million. Okay. Financing's out. I'm freaking out. I can't get a loan. So what do I do? I go to Home Depot. I buy 
$10,000 worth of paint. I put on my old football jersey and I paint the house a different color. I end up selling it 30 days later for $3.6 million, $1 million profit in 30 days. Okay. I'm in the delivery room. My wife is having Lexi, my daughter, two and a half years ago. I'm sitting there and my phone rings on a deal that I've been trying to work for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I'm negotiating the deal while my wife is in labor mm -hmm. with Lexi. Right. My goal, because my dad's a gynecologist, was always to be able to deliver my own baby. I'm delivering my- Is this part of the same, which is this- No, this is the third story. story. Oh, it's the third story. The third story. story. Okay. You got the porno story, you got the- uh, <laughs> The flip story. You got the flip story, and then you got this. And so- the third I, story sounds an awful like my life. <laughs> I'm there. I deliver my own daughter, Lexi, out of my wife, while on hold for the deal that I end up closing okay. after the delivery. Okay. Which one of those three is fake? The third. <laughs> I was not on hold. I did deliver my wife's baby, but I was not on hold. Of course hold. not. How'd you know? Because I'm a lot like you, and my, A, my wife would divorce me. <laughs> and I, I, I listen, I made some big mistakes. I think the biggest mis one of the big mistakes I made was I, I, I was out of balance with my drugs and my second child was living. I fell asleep on my wife's stomach while the baby was coming out. I overdosed on Lutz, and I fell asleep between her legs, and they had to wake me up with smelling salts. But I didn't mean to do that. I wouldn't have consciously like said, let me do something like that. So I said, you know what? And that, that's a sacred moment when your child yeah. is born. It really is. Those are some of the greatest moments of my life, right? So I, you know, that was yeah. it. That was awesome. Why, do most people awesome. get that? I, honestly, I just made it up on the car. Oh, right you over just here. made it. Yeah, this is for you. I don't do this with everybody. Really? This is, this is Jordan Belfort's podcast only. Let Come me on. tell I'm happy I tell you three stories. <laughs> you tell me if Jordan's true, right? Your stories are going to be better. I know no, that. No, no, no. I'll, I'll tell you three stories, right? Okay, right? True story, right? So I got I to gotta, I gotta choose which one's which not Which one right. is right. Okay, right? First story. Now, I'm going to use stories from the movie, but I'm going to find, I'm going to, let's see which one is real or which one's not real. Fine. I'll tell you a story, right? So when I first realized I was under investigation, right, the FBI agent was this guy named Agent Coleman, right? And I was advised not to reach out to this guy. But I figured, what the fuck? I have nothing to hide. You know, why not, right? What's the big deal? So I said, let me go out there and try to touch base. I offer him, say, hey, listen, I know what's going on all over Wall Street. And kind of give him an edge, give him a roadmap that I'm not really the bad guy. So I did invite him, as like you saw in the movie, great scene. I invite him on my yacht. Yeah. All right? And we have this meeting. And I don't really try to bribe him. But like, I make a big show and that's that. And while he doesn't arrest me right then and there, it sort of set us up as sort of adversaries for a while. We ultimately became friends because he was on my podcast recently. But right. that one scene was, you know, where I came about this close to the line of trying to bribe an FBI agent. That's number one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's first story. Second story is when I was actually in the yacht and it was, you know, taking it out, it was going to sink. The reason I took the yacht out in the movie they say it's because I had to get back to Switzerland to sign some papers because my aunt, there's a whole song and dance. The truth was, is that I 
took a bad dose of quaaludes. I, I didn't balance my drugs correctly. And I got into what's called the movement phase. In other words, like I had too much ups and downs in my system. And I said, I can't sit in one spot. If I sit in one spot, I will die. So when I got to the yacht and there was a storm in the, you know, like you couldn't make the cross. I said, Captain Mark said, if you stay in the harbor, I'll die. You have to take the yacht across to Sardinia. We're in Rome going to Sardinia. He goes, we'll make it. We'll break some plates. I said, just, just go. He says, all right, let's go. The storm kicked up into a freak gales for seven, right? 54 waves, bam, the yacht sinks. And it was all because of this bad dose of quaaludes. Okay. That move. That's the second story, right? Third story is I was in Florida going to a back. You have a bad back? I had a bad back. I yeah. went to this back rehab place, right? I was sober for like seven days now, which is a fucking miracle back then, right? In the 90s for me, right? Seven days sober. My friend comes down. He's a world-class drug addict, right? He's stoned out of his mind on lewds and coke, right? He ends up drowning in my pool. We're doing underwater laps. He's stoned. He gets to one side. He drowns. I go and I pull him up. I save him. I give him mouth to mouth. He vomits in my mouth, all right? <laughs> you know, and he's barely breathing. They, they go to the emergency room, we all go, it's like a disaster, right? He's like 40 years old, the kid's a very rich guy, he's actually the CEO of Periel's, all right? We get to the emergency room, and he's in there, he's dying, the guy, they can't get him to actually breathe on his own, his pulse is weak, he's about to die. Another famous doctor named Dr. Barth Green runs in, because he was a friend of mine, he gave a lot of money to his foundation in Florida. He goes, you come with me, he grabs me, we go into the emergency room, and there's my friend dying, he's hooked up to monitors and this and that, and all the doctors are like, Dr. Green, what are you doing here? He's a famous doctor, right? A neurosurgeon, right? He looks at my friend and he's like, just dead basically. And he grabs him by the shoulders. He looks in his eyes. He goes, Elliot, wake up. And that's, oh, and Elliot opens up. He saves this guy. This guy wakes up out of nowhere, right? All the doctors are like, oh my God, that was the most amazing. I'm like, that's the most amazing. And as I shook my head to the right, I saw a glint of a piece of metal. So I'm like, oh, look, what's that? It was a syringe. So I kind of eyed over and it was a syringe full of morphine. So everyone's looking at the patient. So I say, well, I grabbed the, the needle, right? I think I'll just take the morphine. I was sober for seven days, right? Put it in my pocket. It's kind of, I feel my pocket getting warm. It's like burning a hole in my pocket. Like, <laughs> I said, excuse me, I have to go over and tell everyone the good news. I go outside, all right? I say, guys, Elliot's going to live. I said, I got to go to the bathroom. I run to the bathroom. I pull down my shorts. I go to jab myself in the ass. I'm like, fuck. It was like a safety. There's no plunger. It was a cartridge with a needle, but no plunger. I'm devastated. All right. Idea. I run out to the to the gift shop. I buy a blow pop, a lollipop. Okay. Oh I go God. back into the bathroom, pull my pants down. I inject myself. Blow pop is the plunger. Boom. I hit a vein. I get like five milligrams of morphine all at once. I fall on the floor. My eyes are burning. My mouth is dry. And I'm loving it. Right. So now I'm crawling on the floor of the bathroom. I'm like, all right, I have to go. All my friends are in the waiting. I got to go there, right? So I now wash my face. I start walking down the hall, okay? I'm walking down the hallway, bouncing from this place. And an old Jewish couple walks by me. I'm like, hi, doing I'm like, hi. And then she's like, Sonny boy. I'm like, what? She goes, I'm like, what? She just took us, Jewish ass. <laughs> I forgot to pull the needle out. I was walking down the hallway like a dotted bull with a needle sticking out of my ass. I'm like, oh, thank you very much. I pulled the needle out of my ass, right? And I end up collapsing on the floor that take me home. Which of those oh, three stories? God. So here's what here's my thought process. Okay, let's go. The one you just told is so outrageous 
that it has to be true. Okay. Okay. The third one has to be true. I think that because we went from two truths and a lie from me to you first, you were thinking about your lie first. So that was going to be your first one, your first story. So your first story with the FBI agent, parts of that is the, is is a lie. Boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Man. Yes. I love it. We did it, buddy. <laughs> there you go. Legend. <laughs> <laughs> that, that last story, though? Oh, my God. Fucking A. I could do this all day with you, man. Dude, I was, I literally, <laughs> the worst part was, is I was a hero. I saved my friend's life. I was like, <laughs> so I was like, I was like, my, I was falling in good graces with my, my second wife. And then, like, I come back, like, you know, like, crawling on the yeah. floor back from the bathroom. She's like, what happened? I had this stress was more than I could bear. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. All right, guys, we're going we're to actually s- switch now to the audio portion of the podcast. We're going to go another 10 minutes here, all right? Josh Oldman, guys, see this now. Go to either iTunes or Spotify, wherever you watch podcasts. And we're going to, can you go in for 10 more minutes? Share this one with your friends. This is awesome. Let's keep going for 10 all more right, minutes. Let's here. Do it. So, by the way, I'm thinking about here, this should be, a, I think, a new addition to my podcast. To, Two truths and a lie. As long great. as I get my, uh, as long as I get my, well, I get with houses five percent. I'll take five percent of it. I love it. So interesting. So was it the fact? Okay. So what tipped you off? Was it the fact that I was it the first one? Or was it something I said? In- yeah. No. It was just. It was. So your thought process. So you're coming up with the ideas while I'm saying it. You're coming up with the three, and I I went with the third story as being the fake. So you're not going to mirror my story of of being the third as well. It's just too obvious. And then the other thing, which I talked about, was there were too many details in your story. The third one, it was too many de- details that you couldn't make this shit up. You right? couldn't make it up. It was so outrageous that it had to be fake. I mean, it had to be real. So because that's the obvious truth. Um, the, uh, the boat, look, I know the boat is a true story cause I've read the book and I read actually other articles and stuff right. about that, that were out. So that was just straight knowledge. I knew that that was true. Uh, and then the first one, <laughs> the first one was too cool. Tell me a story. What's the craziest. Okay. You must've had some of the crazy, all the shit that you've been through in the last five years when you really became famous and all this Tell me, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened in this whole journey with the million-dollar listing and all right. the you know, stuff that maybe couldn't make it on the show? They had to edit out. Anything that was just too insane or just something that's really magic moments for you? It could not, not terrible. It could be yeah, funny no, and great. I mean, look, the, even, show, the show follows our deals just to the point where the deal opens escrow. So it follows the search. It follows the negotiation. And then it stops. You know, hey, we opened escrow, you got a deal, and that's it. They don't follow the the middle part of the process, which is really where the war starts. So, you know, deals fall out of escrow all the time. Uh, there's arguments throughout the deal that they don't see. Um, so I, I've seen every deal is a crazy story, and that's why I love telling stories on stage, you know. The best, the best thing that came from the show is the fact that I get to travel around the world and like I go to Australia on a tour. In fact, we been our tour person is the same person, yeah. Dan mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and Goran. So uh, Goran. yeah, so we've done those tours where you're like, oh my god, I'm in the furthest place possible yeah. from my home. And all these people know what we're doing and who we are. And so that is that's a moment where always I look at my brother and I was like. You know, we, t- we, we appreciate it. Trust me. We, we've lost it before. So we know what's going on and how lucky we are with all this stuff. But 
the people that I meet, um, I'm not going to say the name, but I had a client once who was such a, a, into drugs and alcohol, uh, a very well-known person, where I was selling their house, and my wife and I had to go to the house before every showing, wait, and this is like three, four in the afternoon, wake up the celebrity, carry them into our car, close the door in the garage, like go into the house, wipe up all the cocaine, all the drugs, all this and that in order, before every single showing. And one of the showings, the celebrity decided that he was ready to come back into his house and start doing more blow. <laughs> and uh, uh, we're sitting there, and I'm like, this is the third bedroom, this is the fourth bedroom, we're upstairs, and we come back down, and I'm about to give the final push, and there they are, the celebrity, mid-blowing a line <laughs> in the dining room right before this couple is about to leave oh. in boxer shorts. <laughs> And it was just one of those moments. It was just like, it was just like, if the world could see some of the stuff that is not seen on TV, uh, they would just, it's insane. Their, their minds would explode of the crazy stuff that we see day in and day out. So that was it. Did you ever have a, a time when you were, uh, were addicted to drugs? Or you didn't take that. You ever go down that rabbit hole yourself? A drug yeah. route? No. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't, that just wasn't my thing. Um, uh, I grew up in a family, actually, is, I, I grew up in a family where I was a huge, I'm from Boston, right? And I was a huge Celtics fan growing up. And they had just drafted this guy named Len Bias. I remember Len. He, he was going to He was going to be the biggest next thing. I remember that. And so I was a huge fan, and then I found out he died, like, yeah. right before he played. He was, like, really young. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from doing coke. And for some reason, that story... When I was younger, resonated with me. And so I was like, I'm never going to do drugs. And that was actually one of the reasons why. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What's in, in closing here? What's uh, the best? And by the way, the natural high is the best high in the world. I know. Closing deals, getting on stage, no motivating doubt. and inspiring people no doubt. is way beyond any quaalude, any blow, any anything. I, I, well, quaaludes are. No. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Thank God they're illegal. Um, no, you're right about that. But listen, what last piece of advice would you give to someone any age that's been living their life at like, you know, like a 10 watt light bulb? They haven't, they, they, you know, they just haven't really been able to get out of their own way. Yeah. They're like on that treadmill, like the gerbil on the wheel. You yeah. know, what, what, what's the, what, what do you think? What would you say to them? Man, I, you know, I want to like clap in their face and say, wake up. And I always say this to people is become the best at something. If you're in a gig where you're literally just a robot going through the motions, I think it's important for you. Let's say your favorite thing to do every day in that job is when you go to the copy machine. I'm just trying to take something so basic okay. and make the copies for the rest of the company. But that's what you like. Be the best at that. Let everybody in that company know that that's your thing. Be known as, oh, that's Josh. He's the guy who does the reports. He's always so happy when he comes around and gives everybody the reports. Figure out what you love and what you're good at and really capitalize on it. Being in an uncomfortable situation is where you're going to grow the most. A lot of times, people live their life and then they die and they don't get to do what they love to do because it's safe. Inside their comfort zone. Inside their comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone 
if you always wanted to try something, like I spoke about, I always wanted to you know, see if I could sell cars, go and try. Go do something where it excites you, where it, where it fuels the fire inside of you. And uh, look, if it doesn't work out at the end of the day, at least you tried it. But uh, look, there's so much opportunity out there in this, in this current, uh, you know, in the current world that we're in right now, there's a lot of opportunity to go out there and make money. There's a lot of people like you and I and other people who are out there motivating people, teaching people, uh, uh, go out there and go learn. Go learn. And it's not going to fall on your lap. People ask all the time, hey, I want to work for you. I want to be rich. You got to go out and you got to take it. Do you have a program that you sell to people like that yeah. shows them? Yeah, I do. How could people? Uh... Yeah. So I have a, uh, uh, just go to my website and email me, thealtmanbrothers.com. Okay. And I do have a, a real estate agent rock star program. So really? if you want to be a rock star agent, high end is high end, by the way. It can be $100,000 in Odessa, Texas, sure, sure. or it can be $100 million in Beverly Hills. It's the process is exactly the same. So if you want to be a rock star agent, uh, email us, josh at thealtmanbrothers.com. And uh, yeah, that's it. And then uh, the podcast is called All Dollars, No Sense. Uh, all Dollars? All, all Dollars, oh, oh, okay. No Sense. And uh, it's me and a buddy and... Uh, we have fun with it. And then, of course, we got the, the YouTube channel, which we're loving doing right now. Uh, so Josh Altman on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, The Josh Altman. And watch the show, Season 12, Million Dollar Listing being filmed right now. I'm actually going after this uh, to go film a scene. And, uh, and that's it, man. I, I'm super pumped to be here. I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. All right, cool. Guys, everyone, Josh Altman, the man, the myth, the legend, Million Dollar Listing, and an awesome guy. Check him out. Guys, share this with your friends. Thanks for listening, and we will meet again very soon in the Wolf's Den. Okay.